That was meant only as a starter conversation. Who, if someone, if one of your colleagues, friends, you're chatting to them about the fact you're a Christian, said that to you tomorrow, who would, or, or now, before this talk, um, who would feel a little bit kind of, oh, the way? Yeah, yeah, most of us, okay. Well, um, so two of the things I said are true. Um, 350 years before the first manuscript copy of the New Testament, and if you take all the uh, New Testament documents that we do have, um, original manuscripts, 400,000 copyist errors. Those two things are true. And I have heard many people, and um, some very, very serious scholars say, but therefore we can't trust that we even know what God said, um, let alone know what it means to, to follow him. Um, but um, we're going to look into that a little bit more. Um, and what we're going to do here is to, um, in this, these opening four verses of Luke's Gospel, um, we're going to do something that's kind of completely opposite to next week. This week we're going to do something very technical, we're going to look at the evidence, because uh, as you saw in the passage Penny read, Luke claims that this is eyewitness accounts, that he's investigated it carefully. And so on. So we're going to look into that careful eyewitness investigation in four verses, and then next week we're going to take two whole chapters. We're basically going to do Christmas in an hour, um, and uh, so big contrast between this week and next week. As we get going on this kind of delving into the evidence, uh, why don't we pray that God helps us? Because if He's real, if Jesus is who He claims to be, uh, then He can help us now by His Spirit to understand these things. Um, uh, in our minds and apply them to our hearts and lives. Um, so let's pray. Father God, thank you for that song that we sang of the Lord Jesus, my God, took the broken and made us whole. Thank you for all those verses that talked about the different ways in which he came and walked among us, in which he healed people, in which he deals with our brokenness, our failures, and ultimately he came to die to rescue us, as Anna was talking about. Thank you that he became one of us. And we pray that as we think about whether there's actual historical evidence for that, that you might give us what Luke wants for his friend Theophilus here, that we may know the certainty of the things we have been taught. Father, if that is possible, if you are real, if Jesus really is the Son of God, please do that for us. In his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I suppose one of the questions people would ask, and a lot of people would perhaps start by just thinking, well, I can dismiss Christianity, I can dismiss Jesus. Why, why be a Christian when there's no evidence? When there's no evidence. Now, um, who here has met my brother Oliver? Okay, so two or three people think they might have seen him. But most of you, for those of you who haven't, I want you to try and put a picture together in your mind of what he's like. See if you can imagine what he looks like, what his character is. To you with that hair. <laughs> Taller, stronger, fitter than you. No? Old brother? <laughs> so, actually, Al's actually met him, so he's given you a little clue. But if you were just imagining in your head what he might be like, you might be kind of thinking, oh, well, I suppose he probably shares some of the family characteristics. He's sporty, intelligent, <laughs> good-looking, 
Um, but beyond that, you're really completely in the dark. And as Al said, actually, he's, he's bald, or almost completely bald. Um, and so for some reason, I've got my one grandfather's hair and he's got the other grandfather's lack of hair. And anyway, my guess is you'd all be wrong beyond a few minor family similarities. In fact, the only way to get a real accurate picture of what my brother is like is if he walked in and stood in front of us and started telling us about himself. And in a less silly way, um, we can only know what God is like if he actually reveals himself to us. And we can only really know what God is like and whether he really understands what our situation is if God steps into this world and starts telling us about himself. And of course that is the extraordinary and unique claim of Christianity. I say unique, I mean there's a few people who have claimed to be gods who have ended up just being laughed at or put in lunatic asylums and so on. But in terms of a credible religion or a religion that people have followed for thousands of years, uh, Christianity is unique. But it's actually a claim that's relatively easy to test, isn't it? If it should, in one sense, put us on, on the front foot to at least say to people, come, come and examine the evidence. Because, you see, it's not possible for us to test whether Muhammad had the Quran dictated to him by God or not. You could say, well, there's lots of amazing things that happened in Muhammad's life. But we can't actually have that same experience. We have to trust Muhammad. And the same principle goes for other religions. It's the religious leaders and that they had some experience of God or mystery that we can't have and we have to be channeled through them. But Jesus actually claimed to be God himself, to be the God-man. And so without any faith at all, without any faith at all, we can quickly narrow down the options based on two simple evidence tests. You might want to jot these down. Two simple evidence tests are... Firstly, are the documents in which he makes this claim reliable? Because that's important. You know, he, may, he may not have made the claim at all, and these documents just may be totally unreliable in saying that he did. And then secondly, does he back up his claim in what he says and what he does? So are the documents reliable, and then does he back up the claim itself? And I think what I want you to do, even if you're a Christian here this afternoon, is just for a moment realise that you don't have to see this as a religious text. It's the editors who've written Holy Bible on the front, but it's just a collection of documents, 66 different books, written by uh, over 20 or 30 different authors. And um, uh, it's just historical text. Um, And it's been handed down to us, and we've got um, lots of different copies and so on. Um, So first look at it as you would any other historical source. Now, of course, in half an hour, it's impossible to give more than a swift overview, and so I'm going to look at four big summary themes, and they're there on your sheets. Have I got them? Yeah, I think so. So these are the four themes we're going to look at. uh, Translation, transmission, trustworthiness, and truth. They're there on your sheets. I've (coughs) kind of tried to give them as much space as I'm going to give them. Um... The first, uh, conveniently, they all begin with T. And one of the things I didn't say at the beginning, actually, is, is if you um, are here, someone who's confidently calling yourself a Christian, um, then take really careful notes 
and think, who can I tell this to tomorrow in the office, um, or this coming week, or this coming month? Um, write down tidbits that you didn't know before, things that will help you to explain to others. Because for me to have looked into this carefully um, is only useful for me, unless you guys take it and then take it on to others. Um, the multiplication effects are, are crucial. Okay, the first is very quick, uh, translation. Now, you may have heard, lots of people have said, um, it's probably one of the first things you hear if you're having a debate about the evidence for the Bible, is has uh, this been translated so many times, like handed on one to another, one to another, into so many different languages, retranslated, retranslated, that it's a bit like um, a game that was racistly called Chinese Whispers, or I think uh, a more politically correct uh, word, wording for the game is called the telephone game. The idea that you pick up the phone, ring someone, tell them one thing, put it down, but they pick up the next, and gradually the thing gets distorted over time, and hopefully the person at the end of the line can say something similar to what the person said at the beginning. Is, is the way that the Bible's been trans- translated ended up doing that? Well, no. Simple answer is just no. All the Bible translators go to the earliest manuscripts... And they translate straight from the original Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, or Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, into our language. They take um, a collection of the original sources, they make sure that that's what was written, and then they translate that. And if you want to know whether translation causes massive variations, just take lots of different independently translated versions. So this version is called the New International Version, it says on the front. There's about... 50 probably English versions were very privileged in England. You can test them all. They've all been translated from the original and see whether it makes massive differences. Um, it's actually quite a useful thing to do to see some of the nuances of the original language without actually being able to speak Greek or Hebrew. So translation is not an issue. Next question that's more to the point. Transmission, as in has the, the text that we do have, have they been accurately passed on? How do we know that the Greek manuscripts these translators are using are the same ones as what the New Testament writers actually wrote uh, 2,000 years, years ago? How do we know that, that the translators have actually got what was written? Because, you see, papyrus, which is a, a kind of reed-type paper, um, disintegrates uh, very easily over a period of uh, 100 years, it normally just disintegrates. It's very rare for papyrus to be kept. Now, we do have quite a lot of little bits of papyrus, but only little bits, and that's what the originals were written on. So we're almost certain that we don't have any copies, of any of the actual original papers that uh, the New Testament was written on. And so what we rely on instead is the copies and whether they match now, if you imagine that I wrote a love letter to my wife, Lucy, and uh, for some reason it was just so beautiful, um, but I put at the bottom only to be copied in handwritten form or something, and then I handed this out, and, sorry, I'm stretching your imagination, and I got each of you to, to copy it out, and then you handed that on to someone else, and they got other people to copy that, and to copy that, and to copy that. Because it's handwritten, there's bound to be errors. But if you... Imagine there were sort of hundreds and hundreds of copies all over the world, but you lost the originals. How would you know what the original said? And you'd compare all the copies. And if they're all so different from each other, well, then you don't know what the original says. Does it say what this one says or what this one says? But if they're all very similar, 
And actually, the minor discrepancies are very easy to kind of work out, ah, well, that must be what it was saying. Then you can go right back, and you can get an accurate picture. And that's what we get with the New Testament Gospels. Now, if you just uh, have a look on the inside of your service sheets, there's a little table there, which hopefully you'll find useful. You see, all ancient documents were written way, 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 way before the photocopier, obviously, and at least 1,500 years before the printing press. And so it all had to be handwritten. And so we need to compare like with like. We need to compare ancient documents with ancient documents. And you can see some other famous ancient documents that are taught in the universities and in the schools that we all just trust happily, uh, listed there, uh, Herodotus, Thucydides, Caesar's Gallic Wars. Now, I want you to focus on two. Caesar's Gallic Wars, the third one on that list, Compare that with the New Testament. So Caesar's Gallic Wars, almost everything we know about Julius Caesar, other than from the few statues and coins and so on, um, is from Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, supposedly written by Caesar himself. Almost everything we know about Jesus is from the New Testament, from the Gospels. Now you see with Caesar's Gallic Wars, it was written about 50 years before Jesus was born, um, The earliest copy we have is from AD 900, that's nearly a thousand years later, 950 years later, and we've got ten copies. No one really doubts that what we have written is what Caesar wrote. And yet, look at the New Testament, Uh, written between AD 40 and AD 90, the earliest scraps are from AD 125, 50 years after Complete manuscript, um, AD 350, so 300 years after. And in terms of the number of different manuscripts and texts and so on, um, the key one to look at is the Greek, because that's the original language that it was copied from, and that's 5,500. So what we're looking at here is something where we've just got an extraordinary number of manuscripts so that we can look at all the different errors and see what the original said. So when someone says to you, did you know that of all the New Testament manuscripts, there are 400,000 copious errors? And if you think that each of those manuscripts, or a large majority of them, would be full texts of the New Testament, with hundreds of thousands of words, 400,000 spread across 5,500 full New Testaments is actually a tiny discrepancy. And if you imagine hand-copying each of those, just one slip, one uh, letter different, someone might have copied a B instead of a D if you were imagining it in English, Um, that would count as one of those 400,000. And actually, what's really reassuring about the fact that we have all these copies with lots of little errors that you would expect in the natural process of copying is that these texts haven't been miraculously preserved. No one's saying that, that this is the one standard and it's been kept in a glowing jar that sort of goes every time you come near it. Um, there's not a claim to miraculous preservation, but actually a preservation through the normal scheme of things. And so although the documents record miracles of Jesus, the means that God has used to preserve the reliability of the text is actually natural means. 
And so obviously there are two ways to look at it. You could say, as one famous um, scholar says, well, if God can't make sure that no copyist errors have come about, well, then it can't be his word. Or you could say the flip side, which is what I believe, which is if God has used the normal means of things to show us to 99.5% accuracy what the original text said, well, then we can be incredibly confident. Well, um, what are some of these errors? What are these um, transmission concerns? Um, if you turn in your Bibles, um, which you have in front of you, or maybe just one of you could turn to Mark's Gospel, the end of Mark's Gospel, page 1024. You'll see at the end of Mark chapter 16, um, there's a line drawn, and then in square brackets, the editors have helpfully said to us, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20 of Mark chapter 16. So you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know where these discrepancies lie. The translators themselves, in the modern versions, have done it for us. They're not biased. They're telling you exactly what the problem is. And there are two big passages like this, one in Mark 16, one in John 8. And therefore, we don't want to take any of our kind of authoritative Christian doctrines from those two passages, because it does seem that over time those bits were inserted into the original manuscripts. Now, Christians debate, and they're allowed to debate, as to whether they were inserted, even though they weren't in the original. Actually, those things actually happened, and those things were actually written, and those things are reliable, and they should go in. Um, others say, well, no, we should just not even read them. Um, that can be a debate that we have. But those two big sections in Mark 16 and John 8 are the only major ones. The others, you can just sort of flip through your Bible and don't do now because it will distract you, but you'll see there are tiny little footnotes at the bottom and occasionally one will say the earliest manuscripts do not have the word and in them. Um, and um, there are a few little issues like that. There are about ten in total in the whole of the New Testament that cause an amount of kind of soul-searching, did he mean this or did he mean that? But in the context, they're really not a trouble at all. Um, so whether they're translated one way or the other, um, it, it doesn't really matter in the context. Um, and each individual um, person studying the Bible can, can make their own call on those specific things. Um, so I would say, actually, the, the, the fact that we have all these different copies and there are so many different errors is really reassuring because we can examine them, we can see, and no one's hiding them from us. Now, on... Uh, a sort of slight aside, if you take the Quran, for example, um, the work that has been going on for two, three hundred years on the Bible to work out where all these different manuscript differences, um, all that helpful research among scholars um, has been going on for that long. With the Quran, it's just starting. It's just starting, and it seems that there are discrepancies within the Quran. Um, but um, there's a much higher standard that the Quran claims for itself. 
and that it's perfectly preserved. And so those kind of copyist errors are nerve-wracking uh, for Muslims, which means that actually it's quite dangerous for some scholars to do the research into that. In Christianity, it's not dangerous at all. You can, you can look into it as much as you like, and you can make all the accusations you like, and no one's going to hurt you. Okay. Um, I think one of the, the tiny things to, to say there is, with all these little texts, the thing that makes them even more reliable is the fact that there was no political control um, for the preservation of the New Testament for nearly 400 years after Jesus. There was no political control, which meant that all these things could be copied and disseminated, and no one could say, no, 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 you can't copy that, and no, you can't copy that. And you can see it by the fact that they're, they're just all over the place, and even little bits of New Testament have been discovered in rubbish dumps with shopping lists written on the back of them, and so on. No one was controlling these things. No one was stopping the dissemination of this. Which means that the argument that you kind of get going on in the sort of Da Vinci Code and stuff like that, of the church controlled it and the church has kept these documents from going out and they've sort of held all these ones back, it's just not true. That kind of church political control didn't exist for over 300 years. So um, we don't need to worry about that. Okay. Um, what about the original texts themselves? Um, when were they actually written? When were they actually written? Because that's another thing that people say is, well, okay, yes, they may be reliable in themselves, but uh, if they were written sort of over 100 years after Jesus' death, then how do we know they bear any semblance to eyewitness evidence? Well, the first thing to say is that they are eyewitness accounts. Um, each of them either directly claimed to be, like Luke uh, chapter 1 does, or um, uh, it's just the way that they're written. So, um, we're having a little bit of discussion on the weekend away as to kind of which is our favourite um, gospel. And um, uh, I think some around the table were saying, well, I prefer Matthew and John because they were both written by apostles. So Matthew was an apostle, one of the twelve who spent three years with Jesus. John was also an apostle who spent three years with Jesus. And so theirs is kind of a first-hand account from their experience. But then um, Mark was... Uh, not an apostle. He was um, hanging out with Peter. Well, he hung out with a lot of the uh, eyewitnesses, but he was hanging out with Peter in the last few years of Peter's life. And, it, and from that tradition of the church and from that which is handed down, it's not actually in the Bible, but it seems very likely that Mark was sitting on the other side of the prison bars, as it were, as Peter told Mark what happened, and Mark was recording all of Peter's experiences. Um, and then Luke, Luke, which we're about to study for the next um, couple of few months. Luke was um, a medical doctor, so a very intelligent man, who um, collected eyewitness evidence, as he says here, and he travelled around with the Apostle Paul. Um, and um, the, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul was um, one of the apostles who came just after. Uh, Jesus had a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, was verified by all the other apostles, and he wrote a lot of the New Testament. And he features big time in the book of Acts. Now, because of who Luke is, that he's not, a, um, a not an apostle, not one of the key eyewitnesses, um, it has a large number of advantages when we test its historical accuracy. So firstly, some of the things people try and claim is, well, of course you claim that Matthew was written by Matthew and John was written by John because they were big cheeses in the Christian world. They were apostles. 
Um, and actually, how do we even know it's written by them? Whereas Luke, no one would pretend that Luke wrote a gospel because he wasn't one of the big teasers. He was just a, a follower who was behind the scenes. And there's no reason to claim it's by Luke. So if it says it's by Luke, it's by Luke. And the other reason that Luke has a big advantage is because it's one of the easiest Gospels to actually date. So one of the big debates among theologians and scholars is when, did, when were they actually written? When were they actually writing down? You know, was it within the lifetime of eyewitnesses? Well, the reason Luke's Gospel is easy to date, and this is something that you can do with a friend. So I, I was at a dinner party uh, last year, uh, and someone said to me, Alex, you can't really take this seriously, can you? Because everyone knows that the Gospels were written well into the second century, over 100 years after Jesus died. How do you, you know, even do your career knowing that stuff? And I said to him, well, let me explain to you right here and now why I know that that's not the case, that actually it was written in the lifetime of, and I can prove it from the text itself. You see, we don't have the original copies. We can't carbon date them. But what you can do with Luke is Luke wrote two volumes. So Luke chapter 1 is written to this guy, do you remember Penny was struggling understandably over his name, to most excellent Theophilus. This Greek man is obviously a very senior politician um, because of the title that uh, Luke uses, most excellent. Um, and he writes Luke to him. He also writes the book of Acts, which is another massive portion of the New Testament, the fifth book in the New Testament. He writes that to Theophilus. And so we know it's a two-volume work, um, because in the second, in Acts, he says, to, in my former book, The Office. Well, Acts makes it so easy to date because the book of Acts is a record of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem out into the known world. And it's also a record of the missionary work, the um, preaching work of the Apostle Paul. Kind of the second half of Acts is almost like a biography of Paul's work. And there are two things in Acts that are not mentioned. These are the two things to jot down. There are two things that are not mentioned in the book of Acts. One is AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in AD 70, the Romans came in, and after a Jewish rebellion, they just ransacked Jerusalem, um, basically razed it to the ground, knocked down the temple, carted off a load of stuff. It was the most horrible thing that happened to the Jews possibly in their entire history, certainly after the exile. Um, a very, very massive thing. And there were quite a lot of Christians in Jerusalem um, at, at and around the time. And so the spread, someone recording the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world would have put in the fall of Jerusalem in their book, had they written it after the fall of Jerusalem. It doesn't appear in Acts. So Acts must have, if you use any kind of logic, sympathetic logic at all, Acts must have been written before AD 70. And then the other thing it doesn't mention is the death of the Apostle Paul. And as I said to you, the second half of Acts is like a biography of Paul. And it actually ends with Paul stayed in Rome preaching the gospel. It ends there. It doesn't mention Paul's death. Again, if Luke had been writing after Paul's death, he would have mentioned Paul had died or included it in some of the detail earlier on. And uh, Paul died between AD 65 and AD 67. So again, you're looking at something that's written before then. So this is within 30 years of the lifetime of Jesus, uh, of the death of Jesus. So well within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And actually what we know from the way the accounts are, 
had done is, is these facts had been sort of jotted down and were being shared loads and loads and loads and loads. The whole aim of the Christians, the early Christians, was to share this message. And they had a really good oral tradition of passing it down, passing it down, passing it down. And the apostles, as they were getting towards the end of their lives, realised, we've got to get this stuff written down. And we know that, as Luke says here, uh, just have a look at verse 1 on our sheets. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many have undertaken. So Luke's saying, I'm not the only one who's done this. So we know that already other accounts have been written. And actually, scholars and historians agree that Mark and Matthew were probably written before Luke and John was written after. So what you've got is something written in the early to mid-60s, with Mark having been written before, so probably in the 50s, or again, very early 60s, and Matthew somewhere in between the two. Um, and so, um, so what we've got is something well within the life of eyewitnesses, in a time when people were able to dispute the facts and so on. Okay, I hope you're not getting too bored, I hope you're finding this useful. Um, now, whilst you can read loads more on those subjects, um, hopefully that idea of uh, the issue of translation and transmission need not be any barrier to finding out what Jesus said and did. In fact, we can confidently tell people uh, some of those facts. But now comes the all-important question of their trustworthiness. Their <coughs> trustworthiness. Um, are the Gospels and the New Testament letters genuine eyewitness accounts? Some people have tried to claim that the New Testament is a kind of collection of mythology based on hearsay about a local, his- local hero, Jesus of Nazareth, and that the New Testament was then compiled for political reasons to create an established state religion. But the first thing to say about that theory is it simply doesn't fit with the historical reality. As I mentioned before, when the Gospels were being written, there was no political advantage for the apostles to teach what they did. Far from having any state approval, Christians gathered often undercover in private houses as a marginalised and persecuted sector of society. Far from having anything to gain personally from writing what they did, all of the apostles and New Testament writers were horrifically persecuted and eventually executed. With the exception, the one exception of John, who died in exile, and while he was in exile he was able to write John's Gospel and Revelation. So in terms of the author's motives, you can't get a much better reliability than the New Testament. You see, if they didn't have, and this is something you can confidently say to people, if the New Testament writers didn't have very strong reasons to believe it was completely true, then given the consequences they faced, death, imprisonment, and so on, they would have had to be clinically insane to write and teach what they did. No one dies for what they know to be a lie. Lots of people die misguidedly. I've seen that too much today. But no one dies for what they know to be a lie. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's go again to the beginning of Luke's Gospel to see the tone of the document. Okay, do you want to ask a question? Um, yeah. It's not, I, mean, not, I have a question about the reliability. My question is the collection of the books. Yeah. Into what we now call the Bible. If they're written in such disparity everywhere, yeah. how do we end up with how did we end up with yeah, what's called the canon of Scripture? Yeah, that's a very helpful question. Um, yeah, I've kind of implied along the way, but I haven't explained. So there, as I said before, there's no political control. And so um, by the time of a very famous council in the 4th century called the Council of Nicaea, 
where the Da Vinci Code, if you read the Da Vinci Code, it will claim that in the Council of Nicaea, that's where Christians decided what was in the Bible and what was out of the Bible. And they took a load of things that could have been in the Bible, and they threw them out, and then they decided on what we've got as being the best thing. Well, that's, that's absolute nonsense. The Council of Nicaea came 300 years after all of the New Testament, as we now know, was already being used. Uh, right from the first century, uh, we've got evidence that what are called the church fathers, the early church pastors, people like me and other church leaders, were using what we've got in uh, the New Testament. And there was no debate over what was in or what was out. Um, it was, they were just being used, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. In fact, within the, early in the first century, we've got evidence of church fathers saying those are the four Gospels. Um, and then the rest of the New Testament as well. And so all these things were being copied and circulated, um, sometimes in a collection, um, and sometimes in lots of little collections. And by the time of the Council of Nicaea, the New Testament, as we know it, was just being circulated as one complete set of documents. Um, but there were a few funny little churches um, all over the place um, with some rather sort of wacky church leaders, but who were starting to gain some kind of power, who were saying, oh, we should include this one, and we should include this one, and we should include this one. And what Council of Nicaea did was say, look, we're all agreed, we've only ever been using this, right? So, case closed. We're not allowing any of this other stuff in. And um, uh, I think in the Da Vinci Code it says it was a close vote. I think it was something like 360 to 1. Um, so it, it wasn't a close vote. Um, any other questions on that? Yeah, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are interesting. They, they don't actually have very much that relates to Jesus at all. Um, what they do have more interest is um, some other sects um, and uh, that are Jewish sects and some Old Testament documents. I think Isaiah is in there. Um, so actually the Dead Sea Scrolls don't really introduce anything new. Um, you can look that up as to what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think you can Wikipedia it. Um, but actually they don't they don't bring up anything of, of controversy. Um, um, I'll keep going on that. Um, but yeah, basically, the New Testament didn't need to be canonised until people tried to, a few hundred years later, insert some other stuff. If you read through Luke, Matthew, Mark, if you haven't done that already, I just massively recommend you just do it what, from start to finish. And one of the things to have in your mind is, does this read like myth? Or does it read like a report of the facts. And I would claim that Luke, a well-educated doctor, is concerned, as he says here, to write an orderly account with careful investigation. And it reads like eyewitness testimony. It reads like sensible fact. In fact, um, as you read through the Gospels, um, you see they're just reporting specific events and specific teachings. And they also include, one of the things that's really interesting is they include many incidental and accurate and specific geographical details which would only be known by those who lived in the area and were eyewitnesses. Um, in fact, it's agreed that most of the Gospels were written outside of Jerusalem because it was dangerous to be in there. 
And so they really would have had to know their stuff to be able to find out from outside, because you couldn't just look at Google, or oh, where's that town in, near Jerusalem? It was incredibly expensive to find out specific geographical details if you hadn't actually been there yourself. You had to send in scouts and so on. Um, and the geographical details and names and so on that they include um, can be compared with the later Gospels, so-called Gospels, second-century Gospels, you may have heard of that the Da Vinci Code and so on mentions, that were trying to be inserted. And you can compare them and see how they stand up. So each of Luke's, Mark's, Matthew's and John's Gospels includes something like 15 to 20 very detailed geographical information about where Jesus was. Um, the other Gospels, say Thomas, Judas, Mary, Philip and so on, include very minimal details. And this is something you could jot down as an interesting fact. The most place names named in the other Gospels is in the Gospel of Philip. He names two places. One is Jerusalem. Not that hard to work out about Jerusalem, given it was the biggest city in Israel. And the other is Nazareth. But Philip gets it a bit wrong. Philip gets it wrong. He thinks Nazareth is Jesus' middle name. So these texts just can't be considered to be included within the Bible because they just don't read as eyewitness, they read as myth just read them um, but if you look at the gospels, even the miracles in the gospel text in the bible are reported in a very matter of fact way in, in fact in some ways they're understated aren't they, rather than sensationalised like in most myths, you know things are exaggerated and you've got people with wings and weird things flying around um, but in the record of Jesus' miracles you don't have anything mythological it's just reported as fact. And the sheer number of those miracles, many of which are recorded in great detail, should be enough to convince us that Jesus really is the divine Son of God, which he claimed to be. But, I'm wondering how much to go. I, I was going to go into more detail here on the resurrection, but I've taken longer in the first section. Um, one of the key things I just want to say, I'm going to flip through my slides, is the evidence for the miracles that Jesus did, but specifically the resurrection, was incredibly important to these eyewitnesses. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He wasn't interested in something airy-fairy or kind of some kind of spiritual resurrection. In fact, here he is arguing with people who believe in just a spiritual resurrection rather than a physical resurrection. And Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And he talks about the eyewitness evidence and the fact that 500 have seen Jesus at one time. He says, the early New Testament writers, the New Testament writers are saying to Christians, if the resurrection is not a historical fact, then you are wasting your time. And actually, it is the best attested historical facts in ancient history. And so there's a huge amount of evidence that's worth looking into. Um, a few little other things that you might want to jot down um, as you're talking to people. Another interesting fact about the evidence written in the four gospel accounts is that the disciples, the apostles, the twelve, um, who are written in there come across a lot of the time, again and again, as fools and cowards you've read through the gospel accounts, that's what they look like. They just look like complete idiots right up until the end, right up until Jesus is risen and, and they're sent out. And you think if you were inventing a story that promoted what you wanted to be true, you wouldn't put yourself down to be an idiot. 
Another little point, which today may seem irrelevant, but then is massive in terms of it could only really be true if it was actually eyewitness account, is the fact that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were three women. Now, the reason that's significant is because a woman's testimony, a woman's legal account, was not valid in the court of law. Witnesses had to be men for it to be seen as valid at that time. And so if you were inventing something you were trying to convince the world was true, you would not put women as the witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, there's um, a Jewish rabbi called... John, can you remember his name? Um, I've got it written down somewhere. Who believes that the resurrection actually happened. He hasn't made the connection with what he needs to believe as a result of it. But he believes the physical resurrection must have happened because there's no way they would have used women as eyewitnesses. He just thinks it's just too compelling. So we're dealing with eyewitness accounts which are trustworthy. And so all that remains is the challenge, is it true? Well, I've gone over time. But um, the, I think the, the big thing I want to mention here is, is we can talk about the accuracy, but if we, unless we read it for ourselves, it's very hard to see this is true. And so one of the key things that we want to be doing is once we're over the hurdle of it's worth looking at, which hopefully I've helped you to get there, um, once we're over that hurdle, then it's just a question of getting people in front of the Gospels themselves. Um, and say, look, as you read it, just feel, see for yourself, does it have the ring of truth? You know, if, if Jim... Uh, just imagine I had a pet lion. You need to really imagine that. Imagine I had a pet lion and that Jim wanted to kill my pet lion, wanted to attack and hurt my pet lion. And there I was, you know, trying to defend the pet lion off Jim. Well, as you know, despite how sporty and athletic I am, I probably wouldn't win against Jim. The best way for me to defend my pet lion would be just to open the cage and let him loose. And that's what we want to do with the Gospel accounts. The best way to defend the Bible, the best way to defend the Gospels, is to open them up and let them loose. And so one of the things we were thinking about on our church weekend away is encouraging a culture of just one-to-one Bible reading. Uh, sitting down with a friend and letting them ask all the questions that they've got as you read through a gospel account. And one of the key things to think about as you do read it through is think, does this deal with the problems that I have and does it provide a solution to that? I've been meeting and chatting to an imam And I said to him, what is the problem that Islam presents me with? And what is the solution that it provides? And I'm looking forward to meeting up with him and going more into depth on that. But I said to him, look, you know, just in the eyes of even a Muslim, I'd probably be quite a good person. Um, What is the problem that Islam presents me with? And what is the solution that it provides? And I don't think Islam presents a real problem other than that I need to believe in the one true God, which I can understand, okay, that, that is a, an important thing, but what, what does he solve? Whereas what Jesus presents us with is that there's a problem that is called sin. And sin is a, a loaded word, isn't it? But sin, in its kind of irreducible minimum, means, it means running away from God, pushing God out of the picture and trying to be independent, trying to set ourselves up as if we're in control of our lives, as if I'm God of my life. And that is very offensive to a God who is in control of the universe and made us for a relationship with him. 
It's not only offensive, it's suicidal, isn't it? As I've used many times, the example of a branch in a tree. If a branch pursues independence from the tree, it may be great for that branch for a few weeks, but it is a suicidal thing for that branch to do. And we are made for a relationship with a God like a branch is made for a relationship with a tree. And Jesus says that he came to be a human being, to live the life that we fail to live, to die the death that we deserve to die, so that as we trust in him, we can be so identified with him that our sin is dealt with and we're brought back. And it's like he is the vine, as he says, and we are the branches. And we can flourish in dependence on him. So he shows us what the problem is and he shows us the solution. And that's something we need to be thinking through as we try and convince people, as we work out ourselves, is this true? Jim, I've messed up all our timings, as it's not a rare occurrence. Here. The good news is I didn't have any timings, so okay. I can pick up from here very easily. Um, do we want to do a little bit of Q&A? Does anyone have a burning question that they want to ask at this point? Um, Jim? Right back to the beginning yeah. of your... Not yeah. the beginning. Um, these different translations, which you can compare one to the other, so mm. we've got however many hundred in the English language. Yeah. Why have we got so many in the English language? Why, why the different versions, NIV, whatever? Oh, I see, yes. Um, so one of the things that Christians have been convinced of from the earliest times is that people should be able to understand the gospel in their own language. And so that's why we've got lots of other languages into which... So Greek was like the English of the day. Um, Almost everyone spoke Greek across the known world, and so that's why we've got mostly Greek manuscripts, and it's really helpful that um, uh, that, uh, it was written in Greek. Um, But also there were lots of other languages, and so the Bible got translated quite early on because people wanted it to be intelligible in people's own language. Now, over the years, that means that where there's been freedom to translate the Bible... At every point, scholars who aren't under any political control think, oh, well, it would be really helpful if I did a translation that was great for this type of people, and I did a translation of this type of people. The most popular translation is the New International Version because it's written in a way that is um, accurate to the original whilst being as intelligible in normal English language as they could make it. But there are some that, are, that give up a little bit on absolute accuracy so that they can be more intelligible to people who don't have a huge vocabulary. Um, and then there are others that are very, very kind of word for word, um, and so they're a bit clunky to read, because it's like reading Greek into English. If you, if you speak another language, you know you can't just translate word for word without it sounding a bit clunky. Um, and so that's one of the reasons. Thank you. Um, I, you were saying that translators go back to the original mm. um, text... But I have been in situations where I've been reading the Bible with someone Mm. where we've had two different translations Mm. and the meaning is like the opposite of each other. I can't really remember what translations they are. But I just wondered how that... So there's a famous example. Um, One thing I I had in my notes but I didn't mention is um, if you're wanting to know what the best, best possible argument against the reliability of the New Testament is, then look up a guy called Bart Ehrman. A guy called Bart Ehrman. He was uh, an evangelical trainee pastor, went to theological college, um, looked into all this, and started to be worried by all the textual differences, and um, 
he started to just go down that line a long way, and he now has written books and done big debates in which he explains to people the fact that there are 400,000 discrepancies and so on. And one of the big ones that he picks up on is the fact that in Mark's Gospel, I can't remember exactly where it is, there's a um, leper who comes to be cleansed. And in the versions we've got, it says that Jesus was filled with compassion, moved with compassion and healed the guy. Um, but in the footnotes, it says he was moved with anger and he healed the guy. And you're like, well, which was it? Was it compassion or was it anger? And most um, translators would look at that and they go to the original and they look, ah, the word for compassion or the word for anger in Greek, if you're just doing the blind thing of copying the shape of the letters, are a very similar shape and you could, you could mix those up. And so that's why they think it happened. There's only in one version that the anger of the words. Others would say the word anger is so unlikely that many of the later copies might have thought, oh, well, let's smooth that out a bit and make it compassion. You could, therefore, say, well, Jesus was moved with anger against the sickness that the guy was suffering, just as he was angry with the fact that his friend Lazarus died. And so those are two opposites I'm thinking of. But actually, if you just think it through and in the context, it doesn't make that big a difference. And that's one of the major things he focuses on. He says, was Jesus angry or was Jesus compassionate? It's one of ten things. It's not that hard to get over. Um, but I don't know if you've got another example. Yeah, so the example that I um, have in my head was where it was like some, it was in Ruth, hmm. and it said something like, one translation said, um, was it so, something like, not even death will part us, and hmm. then one said, everything apart from death will part us. Okay. So it was like actually yeah. to like... Well, that's probably an issue of yeah, translation rather than transmission. So that's where you're looking at it and you're thinking actually the nuance could mean either way. And so then you'd want to look at a number of different translations then you want to look at a commentary. And there are lots of things like that actually in the but Bible. But if they all come from the same original yeah. text, then yeah. how does... So that wouldn't be an issue with the difference between the texts. It would be the issue between the difference in translation. Um, let me give you an example in... English. Um, the word uh, sensible about a hundred years ago used to mean sensitive. So if you said um, he's a very sensible guy, you'd mean he was really warm hearted and compassionate. Um, whereas it now means um, boring, intelligent, sort of straight legs, and you know, it does the right thing. Um, and so there would be an issue of okay, you've got the original language, sensible but how are you understanding it? And that's where you'd need to look at those who really understood the original text. Yeah. And we do have a few things like that. But in context, normally that sorts of it. So whenever you find something like that, just mark it. And I've often found bits like that in the Bible. And I thought, oh, this is so frustrating. Why didn't God make things clearer? And then I dig and I dig and I dig. And he just shows me something much bigger that I ever saw because I've looked at the context and I've looked at what he's actually saying the heart of what he's saying the drive and I thought he must be saying this but he's not just saying this he's saying this and so you get things like Paul saying oh the depths of the riches of the wonder of God as he delves into these really tricky conundrums because actually in delving deeper he gets to see more of the heart of God